Smartcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Recorded at WeWork in Midtown Toronto, this is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, hosted by Adam Levinter. E2 is the podcast where great entrepreneurs tell their story. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak to all kinds of entrepreneurs doing amazing things in business and beyond. And this episode is brought to you in part by the Next Founders Program. Are you the founder of a Canadian business that's ready to scale or an inventor with technology you're looking to commercialize? Next Founders, delivered by Next Canada, is a three-month program that helps founders take their startup to the next level. Next Founders accelerates your growth by providing mentorship from top CEOs and serial entrepreneurs, access to investors and capital, a phenomenal network, unparalleled founder development, and more. Scale your business and your mindset with Next Founders, see upcoming events, learn more, and apply before March 19th at www.nextfounders.ca. Today is my conversation with Josh Hicks, co-founder and former CEO of Plated, which is on a mission to make it easy to eat well and cook more. To date, Plated has shipped millions of meals to over 95% of the U.S. and now partnered with Albertsons, the company has created the first truly omnichannel meal kit experience. In this episode, we discuss the origins of Plated and the growth of the whole meal kit space, the company's experience on Shark Tank and what happened to web traffic once the show aired, the role and importance of software as it relates to sorting through the complexities of its operations, and of course, the big sale to Albertsons in 2017. We had a slight issue with the audio on this one, so apologies for that in advance. The listenability is definitely still there, so stick with it. And with that intro out of the way, let's get to it. Here is Josh Hicks. I think a good place to start probably might be back in HPS in 2008. Were the roots of the whole plated idea planted at Harvard? So not really. You know, it's an interesting question. And uh, certainly a lot of companies get started, um, you know, in, in school, whether it's undergrad or, or, or uh, grad school. Um, and, then, you know, in some ways, I, I wish that Nick and I had had worked on the idea. Um, although, you know, I think probably the, the more honest answer is, uh, I wouldn't change anything because, you know, it's been a fulfilling and, and um, you know, and I think successful ride, uh, which isn't to say it was easy or, or straightforward. But uh, in any case, Nick and I met in 08, um, you know, basically on day one. So Nick was my one co-founder, uh, basically on day one of HBS. Uh, and both of us had, you know, had done entrepreneurial things before and we're, we're fast friends and, um, you know, did... Uh, did all the business school things, you know, academic, travel, social, everything, you know, during our time there. Um, and, and sort of, you know, went our separate ways in a sense afterwards. So Nick, uh, of all things, went into the Marine Corps. Hmm. I went 
off to do some sort of asset management kind of investing work. And it wasn't until 2012 that we got back together. So, you know, at that point, we'd known each other for four years, uh, had been friends, had done enough, uh, you know, social things to realize that we, we liked, you know, spend time together. After, uh, right after we graduated, Nick uh, had been on the board of uh, sort of a, a nonprofit or an NGO uh, that was doing some work down in Haiti, or, you know, right after the earthquake. Um, so we you know, joined them, went down and did, you know, spent some time doing some consulting for some of the hospitals as well as, you know, lots and lots of just manual labor, clearing rubble and such, mm-hmm. uh, which was, you know, again, very sort of fulfilling in, in a sense, right? I mean, felt sort of, uh, you know, good about being able to, to sort of give back and help people even if in a very small way, um, but physically challenging, um, you know, sort of mentally challenging in, in some ways, sort of confronting the, the you know, pretty awful reality of what was going on there. Uh, and we're happy, you know, happy to be able to do all that. And it was a great, you know, sort of test bed uh, for us, you know, working together in stressful situations, um, you know, in a way that I think, you know, kind of proved helpful when we did get together to work on what became plated in 2012. So when did you and Nick start jamming on this whole idea for a meal kit? And based on the research that I've done, the business model for this originated in Sweden, I think, if that's correct. Sort of. So Nick and I got together in January of 2012. Um, I had sold a very small software company and spent a little while at the acquirer integrating it. And Nick was coming out of Goldman. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, kind of found ourselves uh, without a full-time job at the same point. And, and to, you know, to your earlier question, had had spent, you know, years and years kind of talking about doing stuff together. And it was sort of a you know, it felt like a now or never kind of thing. Um, you know, never say never, probably would have had other opportunities, but it was the right time. We were looking to build something, you know, big, something that we felt had a positive social impact. You know, that was important to us. Um, we didn't want to be just, you know, sort of, you know, filling people's time or, or, or you know, there were, there were certain kinds of businesses that just weren't that interesting for us. And we were looking for something that, uh, you know, had a physical product. And certainly the the sort of business model that you're you're referring to in Sweden was, I would say, one of the inspirations. But that business model is really, you know, it's similar but different. They're delivering full sort of, you know, quote unquote, full size groceries. So there's nothing, there's no portioning happening. Ah, um, okay. They're delivering with their own delivery trucks, their own fleet, right? Smaller country, different logistics model. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's no portioning, you know, the, the sort of full logistics are, you know, entirely different. Um, so, you know, like the thought of people wanting to shop in meals is one of the core ideas, core insights uh, of plated, but you know, there, there've been lots of attempts at this in the past. I mean, there were, you know, bricks and mortar meal kit businesses in New York, at least, uh, as long ago as I think even the nineties. Um, you know, I I think this is sort of a, a theme in entrepreneurship is that there are very few, you know, if any, uh, kind of purely original ideas. Uh, and I'd argue that's true for, you know, social networking or ride sharing or whatever, you know, the, the, the problems are not new. You know, people have a lot of the same problems throughout history. The solutions might take different forms. They're enabled by new technologies, you know, and so on and so forth. In our case, social media was a huge growth driver. Um, you know, people like talking about food. It's a visual medium, et cetera. And social media, obviously, you know, is relatively new. The, the problem itself is not new. People want to eat good food. They want to feed their families well. Most people enjoy cooking at least part of the time, uh, but the solution, you know, was a, a new form, but nothing is entirely original. Yeah, it reminds me of Webvan. So 
Amazon Fresh one <laughs> 1.0, right? Um, yeah. Grocers That's Direct. Right. That's right. And that was a, you know, certainly a, a business we were aware of and, and, you know, and something we looked at and then tried to understand, you know, why it hadn't worked. Uh, it also was a significant challenge in our fundraising because, you know, Webvan, and I don't know, I don't recall the, the numbers exactly off the top of my head, but, you know, was a historic, uh, you know, sort of failure in the sense that it consumed just tremendous amounts of capital, lost tremendous amounts of capital. Uh, and a lot of investors were, were, you know, connected to it or invested in it in some way. And so when we first got out, you know, on the road pitching people, uh, that was one of, if not the most frequent objection is, you know, we get some version of this just looks like Webvan 2.0, get out of my office. And uh, <laughs> usually, usually that involved more expletives and was a, was a bit less friendly than that. But that was the message. Yeah, but you had the numbers to back it up, right? Like WebN had, I think, at its peak, four hundred thousand dollars in revenue or something like that. Folks that lost, you know, huge amounts of capital uh, to WebVan were, were, you know, somewhat understandably not all that interested in, in talking to us. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So you mentioned the portioning and the logistical challenges. I want to dive in there for a sec. So how did the operation sort of evolve, and what did it look like at the very beginning? And as you guys scaled up. Like the one thing I have trouble sort of wrapping my head around is how you keep up with the complexities of sort of creating new menus, sourcing ingredients. It's probably more nuanced that I'm even mentioning, right? <laughs> sure. So on the on the first question, so how we, you know, how we sort of thought about it, you know, I think this is again pretty pretty standard stuff for early stage companies, but you know, part of why I think the execution is, you know, so so important, right? I mean, the, the original idea. Yeah. And this has been written about in many different ways and you know, by people smarter than I, you know, this sort of this sort of concept of entering the idea maze. Like you start with a core insight mm -hmm. and then everything evolves from there. You know, we we thought that we were going to be able to go. I mean, our original sort of, you know, 1.0 business plan, if you will, was, was to be the, the front end, to be the marketing engine, to build the website, to do the recipe design, et cetera. And then use, you know, a co-packer or a third-party logistics company or some other kind of business partner to do the, you know, the sort of quote-unquote logistics. Mm -hmm. um, and I say quote-unquote because there's as much manufacturing involved as there is logistics. Um, that turned out to be a pipe dream. Nick and I spent, I think, probably three months, maybe more, on the road meeting every, you know, sort of 3PL that would talk to us. Uh, and it turned out they're just there wasn't anybody doing what we needed you know, them to do. Um, and because nobody was doing it, uh, you know, we got a couple of custom quotes, but the, the, the economics just didn't work. First idea was partner with a business to do it. Mm -hmm. Second idea was, well, crap, we're going to have to do this ourselves, so let's figure it out. Um, we thought we would build the warehouses ourselves, um, you know, be, be super innovative, we thought we, we knew everything. We were going to build our own freezers in a modular fashion. And all, well, that was a bad fucking idea too. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> burnt up a bunch of savings that way. Uh -huh. uh, and so, you know, the, the, the sort of third iteration that, you know, became the beginning of the, the sort of long-term solution was, you know, using other people's warehouses. So, I mean, in the sense of, you know, leasing uh, refrigerated space, but running operations fully on our own. So, as we kind of built that out to your second question, how we dealt with the, you know, the complexity, you know, the, the short answer is software. Um, and this was always an interesting thing for, for me as we worked through the business, you know, 
It's a, it's a fair question. It's a natural question. In some ways, it's a standard case of, you know, software eating the world. Software absorbs complexity. That's what it does, right? I mean, it is almost a textbook case of you have, you know, huge, vast amounts of business rules with lots of permutations um, and sort of logic trees and all these things. Well, that's, that is, you know, a description of a certain kind of software. That's, that's what it does. You know, the business does have a lot of complexity in how you source, you know, what, what turns out to be, you know, a hundred plus different ingredients every week. You're right that there is a huge amount of, you know, sort of operational complexity in figuring out how much of which ingredient to buy in what region on what day, because you're buying it, you know, many days a week. So that's as fresh as possible. But all of that very much lends itself to software. I get that. But let me ask you this. I mean, the software, sure, it absorbs complexity, but it, it can't, the software can't pick the actual tomato, right? It can't pick the onion, make sure that's the freshest it can be. And I would assume that from a customer service standpoint, that becomes mission critical, right? Of course. Of course, the, the freshness of the, you know, the ingredients is mission critical. Um, and you're right, at least for now, the software can't, you know, pick it. Although certainly there are, you know, interesting kind of, you know, nascent applications of things like computer vision to looking at produce, right? There are both visual in, in the sense of what the human eye can see markers of freshness, right? We all have some sense of looking at a tomato and understanding it's fresh or not. And also, um, you know, non-visual markers. Ultimately, like most things, I think kind of understanding freshness yields to a, a sort of 80-20 kind of pattern, uh, meaning that it matters a lot if the produce is handled properly, making sure that, you know, you're, you're enforcing uh, and measuring and recording things like temperatures and how old it is. If you pick a tomato and you handle it properly, when it gets to the customer with, you know, 95% plus certainty, it's going to be very fresh. So that is a, a software problem or a problem that, you know, I think current sort of software approaches can handle. So on the customer service side, were you guys tracking why subscribers were churning? Sort of reason codes as to why they were canceling? So some people would just say, you know what? I thought I was going to really like cooking and I was trying to learn to cook, but I'm just going back to, to you know, ordering out or, or, or getting, you know, prepackaged meals, you know, to feed my family. Some people just don't want to cook and that's okay. You know, nothing's for everybody. You know, sort of in the office, we would talk about, uh, you know, Apple's market share is whatever it is these days, but you know, it's certainly not hundred percent. Not everybody has an iPhone. I believe it's even less than half people in the U S the, the more important bucket is the people that do want to cook, but that for whatever reason, you know, weren't, you know, sort of willing and excited to remain customers. Um, and for them, I would say there was, you know, again, just a, a sort of small, uh, small list of, of important reasons. Um, you know, probably the, the most important reason was it just didn't fit their life lifestyle. And so, you know, this is what ultimately in a lot of ways led us to the partnership with Albertsons. So I would always talk about my sister. So I have one sister, she has twin, uh, now three-year-old boys. Um, they live in Minneapolis and they have a very, you know, uh, sort of predictable, um, you know, routine, uh, which is great. I, you know, I think that's true for most folks with, with young children. Um, you know, and I'm going to make this up, but, you know, Monday night would be soccer practice. And, you know, Thursday would be, you know, piano lessons or, or what have you. Tuesday and Wednesday, they, they would want to cook together. Well, so they would have their plate delivered on Monday so they could cook Tuesday and Wednesday. 
Mm-hmm. The subscription worked well for them. The two night a week minimum worked well for them. They loved it. And we had a lot of customers like that, you know, customers for whom you'd have to pry the subscription from their cold, dead hands. Now, if you look like a lot of folks, um, and, and, you know, certainly we had plenty of these folks uh, in the office that played it, younger, you know, don't have families yet, um, you know, might end up at work till late, might end up traveling at the last minute, you know, don't have predictable routines, or maybe you're only cooking for one person, or maybe you only want to cook one night a week, the subscription two night a week minimum just doesn't work that well for those people. You know, if you're only going to cook one night a week and you don't know which night because you have a hectic schedule, like the, the subscription product doesn't really work well for that person. So, you know, we need to go figure out how to have something that's closer to a la carte, closer to on demand. And I think it's an important point because there's a lot of, you know, sort of speculation in the category that subscription doesn't work and, you know, this, that, and the other. It, it does, in fact, work really well for a certain kind of customer. It's those other customers that, you know, want a different offering. And I think this is true for, for all businesses. I mean, you just, you know, again, nothing's for everybody. You have to meet the customer where they want to be met. This leads into the whole omnichannel stuff that you write about in your Medium post. And I think this is middle of 2018 or something like that. So I'm just going to read an excerpt from it. You said, your business reaches a natural ceiling where you cannot grow beyond and... You have to keep advertising to reactivate customers. Otherwise, your business will shrink. This isn't exactly the panacea you thought it would be. So just give listeners some context as to what you mean with this particular quote and, and what you wrote about in that in that Medium post. You know, this is not my original thinking. Would would certainly not ever try to take credit for it. Um, and it's true of all businesses. Every business, every product reaches that natural ceiling. You know, so I think what's important is uh, in thinking through it, how how high that ceiling is, right? I mean, are you selling a product that uh, three people in the world want or that, you know, three billion people want? How expensive is it to to acquire those customers? Right? I mean, what do you have to do to, to convince them to, to buy your product? And then, you know, for, for, for certain, you know, for certain kinds of businesses, for subscription businesses, um, you know, what are the reactivation costs, right? I mean, subscription businesses tend to have uh, this this sort of, um, you know, pattern where people will turn them off and on. All of that, I think, is, is sort of the backdrop for what I was trying to convey there, which is, you know, if it is really expensive to acquire customers and the ceiling is, you know, relatively low, uh, meaning there's you know, only just so many customers that want your, your, your product, you know, you might find yourself in a place where the business is not, you know, as big or as profitable as you'd like for it to be. Uh, obviously, that is not Apple's problem. They're very profitable, very large. What I was trying to convey in that in that medium post, uh, and, and certainly for the folks that are curious to read the, the whole thing, uh, although I'll admit, I think it's maybe a bit uh, dry for a lot of people. Um, <laughs> you can just Google my name and, and medium and, and find it. But um, what I was trying to convey is that for food subscription businesses in particular, uh, for the reasons I've described, right? If you take 100 people, Roughly 25 of them like subscription food, right? They kind of match the profile of my, my sister in some sense. They have stable machines, et cetera. Mm-hmm. The challenge for these food subscription businesses is that those other 75 people, you really, you know, you want them to be customers. Now, acknowledging again, nothing's for everybody. You're not going to get 100 out of 100 people to, to remain customers. You probably would like for 50 or 75 of those people to remain customers. 
and you need to add other purchasing formats to be able to do that. Uh, and that was, you know, kind of the general idea I was trying to convey in, in that article is, you know, adding retail to your sort of channel mix means that you can service more of those customers, right? You can meet them where they are and maybe move from 25 out of 100 sort of staying with your, your, your product and your business to 50 or 75 out of 100. Um, what about the impact to customer acquisition costs? So as, as the competition heats up, right? And it looked like, you know, circa 2014, there were just a lot of new entrants in the space. What happens to your cost of acquisition if you're bidding on traffic through, say, Facebook and relying on Facebook as sort of a primary acquisition channel for subscribers? So certainly, you know, customer acquisition cost is, is perhaps the most important number for any you know, direct-to-consumer business. I think this is a very tough question. Um, the, the only thing I think you can say for certain is that acquisition costs you know, do go up. They go up in ways that are different than I think a lot of people think. Uh, let me try to unpack that a little bit. Part of what I was trying to convey in that Medium post is customer acquisition costs typically go up the faster you try to grow, right? So independent of new entrants or anything else, mm -hmm. if you double your spend, you typically don't get double the customers, which is a you know not a great dynamic. Uh, that's true in particular in the you know so-called auction channels, right? Where you're bidding on media, as you just you know, said. You know, buying more TV media tends to not you know increase the cost. Uh, so you know, it's different in different channels, but it, at least on the whole, uh, you know, trying to grow faster tends to lead to higher acquisition costs. So that that is independent of new entrants or anything else. Um, the other thing going on, you know, over time, at least over the past, you know, call it five years or so, is that Facebook in particular, which has been, you know, the biggest channel for most direct-to-consumer businesses, has simply just been raising its its rates. Mm -hmm. You know, whether you whether you're measuring cost per click or cost per you know impression CPM, uh, they're raising their rates, which is you know understandable. It's the the natural thing for them to do. They're they're you know, a public for-profit business, uh, and so again. Regardless of new entrants, the, the rates that they charge have simply been going up. So it becomes, you know, probably impossible without no, without having all the data, which you'll never get. You know, none of these companies will disclose their exact numbers. Uh, it becomes impossible to know how much of the increase in customer acquisition costs is because of Facebook, how much is because the companies try to grow faster, and how much is because of new entrants. And, you know, like most things, it's probably a little bit of all three. Were you guys watching the competition at all? Like, did it matter what Blue Apron was doing, HelloFresh? I mean, I would imagine to a certain extent it does, but uh, in terms of mapping your strategy, were you just focused on what Plated's mission was? Short answer is yes. Uh, doesn't mean we, we did that perfectly or even well uh, at some times, but, you know, I think, uh, you know, <laughs> Steve Jobs is credited with saying, uh, you know, great artists or good artists copy and great artists steal. Uh, we tried to be shameless about, you know, stealing the, the sort of ideas that worked. Uh, and so, you know, to, to reference another, obviously, sort of great entrepreneur, Bezos talks a lot about, you know, paying attention to the customer and not the competition. And and we tried to really, really instill that in the in the culture. It's not about what your competitors are doing. It's what you're doing for the customers. Um, and then also because we weren't in a mature market, you know, our, our, and, I, and I would argue still even today or not. You know, our, our thinking was, you know, this is, and there's different, you know, sort of numbers floating around, but, you know, by all accounts, you know, grocery and food 
is a multi-hundred billion dollar, if not you know, north of a trillion dollar industry. And you know, uh, e even in 2018, you know, you're talking about a few billion, two, three, four billion, something in that kind of approximate range uh, in meal kits. So you know, a few billion out of a few hundred billion um, would tell you that you know it's really not about you know sort of fighting over you know the two percent of the market that's tried meal kits uh, or whatever the exact number is. It's really about appealing to more customers. So. You know, we, we did try to focus on customers and, and not, uh, you know, overly focus on competition. They're just getting, I mean, the customers are just getting bombarded from so many direct options. Like you've got, you know, the more traditional direct players like Amazon and Instacart for groceries. Um, you've got the direct restaurant delivery from Uber Eats and DoorDash and, and others. So it, it kind of feels like meal kits are getting squeezed from both sides here. How do you see it going forward? It's a, I, I laugh. It's an, I've never heard anybody say that meal kits are getting squeezed yet. It's interesting because, you know, we, we are, the category has historically, and I say historically, all of, you know, seven years in now, has been the ones sort of squeezing others, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the real answer, regardless of, you know, who, who's squeezing who, uh, I think the real answer is, again, back to the focus on the, 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 the customer, right? I mean, this is it's a great example, actually, of, you know, where I would, you know, as CEO, stand on a chair and just pound the table, guys, like focus on the customer. What are the customers doing? What are they telling us? And I think what you'd learn is, you know, most customers want to use all these products. Most people want to eat out. Uh, most people want to have some kind of delivery, you know, whether it's pizza delivery or Chinese or, or what have you. That's in their you know, kind of portfolio of dinner options. And then most people also want to cook. Um, and again, you know, exactly what the week looks like differs by, by person and by family, but people want all these things. And so this is where, you know, again, I would pound the table, focus on the customer. You know, yes, Uber Eats is great and they are a competitor to Seamless, but our customer wants to use delivery All right, they want delivery. They also want to cook. So it's not about squeezing them. It's about making sure that on the nights that our customers want to cook, that we are the best damn option for them to cook. What about the environmental impact? So let me ask you about that. So um, Redistat, according to Value Chain International, about 40% of food bought in the grocery store goes to waste. And with meal kits like plated, for example, that number drops down to 1%. And the flip side of this sort of comes from critics that say, you know, meal kits produce a big packaging footprint. There's a lot of packaging that goes into the garbage can, whatever. What is really going on? So it's, it's, a, it's an important question. And it's something we, you know, we, we, we talk and, and think a lot about. Um, so I'll, I'll give you some thoughts, uh, the headline of which is, you know, I, I don't think that enough work has been done to, to state, you know, uh, sort of definitively what the, the, the sort of answer is, right? If the question is, you know, which is more environmentally friendly, shopping at the grocery store or buying meal kits, I, I can't say definitively, but I'll, but I'll give you some thoughts. You know, you cited uh, some numbers that I think lots of, of research has, you know, has sort of concluded, which is that. When you buy in the grocery store, you end up, you know, wasting a, a lot more food. And, and I think most consumers have had that experience too. You know, you sort of open the refrigerator on Sunday and go, "Wow, like most of this is, is you know, sort of expired or rotten," and you know, throw it all away. Um, with meal kits, that doesn't happen. Um, you know, and, and remember that that food you're throwing away also had a tremendous amount of, you know, sort of transportation cost to it, right? right. Produce is flown from California to the East Coast, and so on and so forth. 
So they're, they're you know, sort of hidden costs. Uh, in addition, when you buy uh, groceries in the grocery store, there's still packaging associated with that. It's just hidden from you, right? I mean, uh, you know, like the, the sort of the, the, the reality for better or worse is that, that those groceries didn't arrive, you know, largely direct from the farm, you know, sort of hand handled. Like they came in, in cases and crates and packaging as well. You just don't see that. So there's less packaging, but it's not like there's none, you know, and, and, and on the meal kit side, you know, I know the whole industry and certainly plated uh, continues to invest in making the packaging more recyclable. Now, you know, complicated, you know, sort of question because recycling, you know, availability is different in different geographies. Um, you know, not every consumer does it or, or, or fully understands it, which is, you know, understandable because it's a, uh, you know, because it is complicated, but uh, a lot of the packaging is recyclable, you know, and that's an, and that is a, that is something that the, the industry is, you know, the milk industry in particular is continuing to invest in. So I don't, you know, again, honestly know which is sort of better or worse. I do know that food waste is a massive issue and that, you know, the all in environmental impact of grow, you know, irrigating uh, fields and fertilizing fields and transporting the food in packaging to then have huge amounts of it wasted is a big problem. Uh, I just can't say definitively whether you know, meal kits uh, have fully solved that yet, but it's a, it's a big effort and people are working on it. Let me ask you about your experience on Shark Tank. So, so when you guys appeared on the show and I think was it 2014, right? You guys get a deal done with Mark Cuban, or at least on the show, and then does the deal fall apart after the show? Yeah, so we did. Uh, our, our episode aired in, in 2014, yes. And on that first episode, we we did a deal with with Mark. You know, and I think that the thing that uh, is not super obvious when watching the show is, you know, there's a lot of investment terms that you need to, to talk through. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and sometimes you, you just don't, you know, fully get there and um, you know, I think it's a, a big responsibility to, to, to take people's, um, regardless of whether they're you know, wealthy people or not, um, you know, taking somebody else's money, managing somebody else's money is a huge responsibility. And so you need to be really sure that you, you see eye to eye on all the terms. Um, and ultimately we just, we just didn't get there and, and, you know, sort of parted ways. Once the show aired, what happened to say, for example, your, uh, your online traffic or your subscriber count Any, anything you could share on that front? Sure. So, I mean, I think the, the, the first thing is it, it's a tremendous media platform. You know, the, everyone involved there has done just an absolutely tremendous job with, with building, you know, a franchise that people love watching that, you know, drives tremendous amounts of traffic. Um, you know, I haven't sort of looked at the numbers recently, but you know, I mean, it, it's tens of millions of households. So, you know, at least in rough numbers when it aired and we were, we were, you know, reasonably early in the business, and I think, you know, sort of pre-airing uh, on average, you know, looking at Google Analytics, there would be 50, you know, visitors on the site at any given time. So I remember watching, you know, the night that it aired, we went from, you know, in the first three seconds of airing from, you know, probably 50 people on the site to 50,000. You know, overall, it was a lot of fun, uh, very grateful for the experience. And, and I think hard to sort of overstate how big that was. Did you have venture capital interest pre uh, show appearance like did were were you already in talks in terms of raising I don't know Series A uh, in 2014 like what was the timing for your seed and then your Series A and your Series B and sort of where the show fit into the equation Yeah so we had already fully closed and oversubscribed Series A before we before the show aired so yes I suppose is the short answer 
you know, the business was growing very, very rapidly and, and you know, e-commerce is capital intensive. So you know, we, we needed to raise money. In any case, uh, yes, we had we already raised, uh, you know, many millions of dollars from from venture capital before uh, before that. So the sale to Albertsons, for those that don't know about this, uh, this chain, I think it's the second largest supermarket chain in North America behind Kroger. And, and funny enough, Kroger, I think, got involved later and bought, I think, was it Home Chef, right? Yes. Um, so how did you guys get acquainted uh, in deal talks with Albertsons? So this is another area where I think having you know, great sort of mentors and investors around us was uh, was really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um you know, which we did, and I, you know, I really do believe is uh, is is pretty critical. I mean, you know, it's never people or any individual that accomplishes anything. It's it's teams, and um, you know, I think we were we were fortunate enough to be able to put together a phenomenal team. So one of the things that we heard very early on, um, you know, when I say heard, uh, it was really more the case that uh, people kind of pounded it into us, and I'm happy they did, was to go and you know build relationships with. The, the, you know, the people in the industry. Uh, and so, you know, we pretty close to, to sort of day one, I mean, certainly in the first year, started building relationships with the leadership of, you know, really all the big grocery chains and other, you know, players in the, in the food space, mm-hmm. um, you know, and just tried to be, you know, very sort of deliberate about it. You know, if we were going to be in, you know, a city where one of these folks is, you know, headquartered, we'd make sure to, to let them know ahead of time. And, you know, hey, if you're, if you're free, like would love to you know, have lunch or catch up. And if not, let's find time for a call sometime in the next quarter or so. Uh, so, you know, we had known, you know, most of the, if not all, the, the kind of, you know, big chains around for, for a long time, uh, which I think is important because it, it just, uh, selling your company to somebody, partnering with somebody, taking money from somebody for that matter, you know, is a, is a big thing. And, you know, it, it's a bit like uh, any other sort of big commitment, whether it's, you know, romantic or otherwise, I mean, so sort of the analogy is, is kind of, you know, you're getting married to this person, like you probably ought to get to know them first. So, you know, not sort of proverbially show up on the first date and say, great, I'm in a rush here. Like, will you marry me? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, spend time getting to know them ideally over the course of, you know, years, uh, which we had done. All those stats on arranged marriages, I think are pretty compelling. <laughs> um, uh, at least, uh, you know, there's somebody involved that knows you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, Okay, so so what's um, what what was the sort of post understanding uh, with respect to your role and, and Nick's role uh, after Albertsons bought you guys? So one of the things that we liked about Albertsons when we when we met the team there was the way that they they ran the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are you know they are really uh, sort of a, a a portfolio of grocery stores. So you know what a lot of folks don't know is um, you know, the company is named Albertsons because that was the first grocery chain that they, uh, that they bought. Um, but they also own Safeway and Tom Thumb and Randall's and, you know, something like 20 different brands. Um, we were the, you know, 21st, uh, which also meant that, you know, we got to run roughly independently. Um, you know, and the, the, the sort of idea was run as an independent business, but get the leverage of having, you know, thousands of stores and a big supply chain and everything else. Um, so, you know, kind of short answer to your, to your question is, uh, you know, our roles didn't change a lot, um, other than, you know, we no longer had a, a board and investors and, you know, so that, that work stream went away. Um, but by and large, you know, our roles were, uh, were the same focused on the business and, and, you know, got to spend more time focused on employees and customers, um, because it was sort of the, you know, the reverse of, of, uh, taking money from people when the company was bought, 
you know, kind of give all that money back um, and, and just focus internally. Um, in the last couple of minutes, where do you want to point listeners to for more information about you, Josh? And of course, Plated. Well, Plated, you can just find at Plated.com. And I, I'm probably easiest found on uh, on Twitter, just at Josh Hicks. Um, and that's uh, those are the big things. Thank you for listening and being a part of E2. E2 is brought to listeners in part by Scriberbase, building subscription businesses for retail brands. Visit Scriberbase.com for more info. Indochino, made to measure suits and shirts at a great price. More at Indochino.com. And WeWork. WeWork is a global network of workspaces where people and companies grow together. WeWork, where businesses thrive. More at WeWork.com. Your positive support means a lot to us. So if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your audio. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric House Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. Welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you that it's never too late to write your next chapter. So get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Electric acid. Electric acid.